Miss Mariah, Miss Heidi, appreciate that so very much. Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, join me there. Hebrews chapter number 10, if you have a prayer bulletin, have an outline on the back side of it. We'd love for you to follow along there. If you need an outline, Brother Ron Ruby's going to head down the middle aisle. We'd love for you to uh, have one to follow along as we jump in back into Hebrews chapter 10. Been a couple of weeks since we've been here with a missionary last week. And so if you need an outline, please get Brother Ron's attention. Appreciate uh, Brother Doug and Miss Lori. They're helping out with a children's class on the other end since our college and career uh, are um, still in Brazil. And so appreciate them being willing to lead that class this evening. Grateful for their ministry in that way and uh, so forth. All right, back in Hebrews chapter number 10. If you remember, just two weeks ago we were here, we looked at verses 1 through 18, and uh, uh, we understood it. It, it. It's a neat culmination of the doctrinal presentation by Paul of the supremacy and superiority of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's very much bringing it to a close. You'll see verse number 19, we see the, one of those easy segue words, therefore, and uh, uh, the, or excuse me, verse 19, having therefore, okay? And so he's going to get into some very practical material starting in verses 19 and following, and uh, we'll get to that. But this is kind of bringing it all to a close and uh, uh, kind of summing it all up in some ways, but also adding some things to it. And we came to understand that verse 12 is really the key to this passage, verses 1 through 18. Look at verse 12 again of chapter 10. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The single sacrifice for sin, and we talked about it and put it this way, hence the reason Christ uh, said on the cross, it is finished. We, we call it here a finished work. Uh, this past Sunday night, we observed the Lord's Supper. Um, some would have us believe that every time we do so, that bread becomes the actual body of Christ, that blood actually becomes, or that juice becomes the blood of Christ, and he is sacrificed again and again and again. My friend, that is not scriptural. That is not true. The scriptures are clear, as we've seen in this passage. It is a single sacrifice. It is done once forever for sin. Hence verse number 12 here, that, that key, okay? This is at the heart of the gospel. We can do nothing for our own sin debt. Jesus paid it all. He did it all. As we sing tonight, he lifted us. When we had no ability in and of ourselves to lift ourselves spiritually, he did it for us. Here's Paul's point in the passage. He presents what we would call a, a rich theological truth about the sacrifice of Christ. Yet it is not a recent development. It is not something that just came along and, and Paul's just introducing a new thought. He says it's been there all along. It's been there within the old Levitical system of sacrifices and offerings. For the, the astute eye, for the one who knows what to look for and understands what God is doing through that, you will have seen that it's always been there. It's been pointed to. It's been presented in a way. And so that's where we got number one, Roman numeral number one, the single sacrifice was pictured. Verse number one, we saw two terms, the term shadow, which we looked at before, and also the term good things to come, which I, I love that statement. He says that again here in this verse, in verse number one, that uh, we have good things to come. Those things were a shadow of those things, okay? Before, we talked about how a shadow was lacking the substance, and we looked at it in a negative sense, and understanding that uh, the real image is the real thing, and as he uses that term image here. The shadow was empty of substance. But that's not how he's using it here. The term shadow here is from a different perspective. He's saying a shadow actually has a benefit. You remember us talking about this last time. It literally, it proclaims that something is there. 
it speaks of something being present, that there is something real. And so we identify that these shadows of the Old Testament had a then a divine purpose. Have a divine purpose. They proclaim that something is there. Literally, they are given to create an expectancy in the hearts of God's people. If everything is pointing to Jesus Christ, if everything's proclaiming his coming, as we'll see even um, this evening, some things that Paul says in this passage, if everything does so, then it is there for a purpose and it is to build within you and I and everyone that sees it, the expectancy of Christ's coming. So then we alluded to the trifecta definition. The shadow then is preparatory, it's preliminary, and it's anticipatory. It's all of those things as used in the scriptures for telling us that Christ is coming. Holy Spirit would also point out a couple more things as we saw last time. Quickly, letter A, they were repetitive. He used the term in verse 1, year by year, continually. And that they were repetitive in nature. And the fact that they had to be repeated year after year reminded the worshiper of something. The, still pro- the sin problem was still there. It had not been atoned for completely. It had not been erased. It had not been paid for. The debt was still present. And we made that statement, verse number 4 also. That's uh, a powerful statement here in verse number 4, that animal sacrifices are incapable, and here's the key, taking away my sins. Why is that such a problem? The Bible says what? For all have sinned. For all have sinned. We come short of the glory of God. There's only one thing that can take away sins and restore the, the relationship of creation with creator, and that is Jesus Christ. The shedding of his blood and what he did on the cross of Calvary. And so Paul here, the author of Hebrews, is making it very clear. So we made this statement, these sacrifices had to be repeated, an ongoing shadow picturing the real thing to come, okay? But also verse number three, and I I like how he inserted verse number three, if you remember us looking at it. He says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance. There is a remembrance. So you see, not only was it repetitive, it was also reflective. It was reflective. Uh, causing them to reflect. What was it they were reflecting on? Well, we talked about the Day of Atonement, that there was a scapegoat that was presented alive before the Lord. There's two, two of them. One was killed and his blood applied. The other one was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands on that scapegoat, the head of the scapegoat, and he would recite all of the sins of the nation of the people that year. And so in that, and as we considered it two weeks ago, we saw that the Day of Atonement was really a serious reminder to the Jewish people that they still had a sin debt, a deep sin problem in their hearts that had not been taken care of yet. It was still there. It had not been dealt with. Their conscience was still subject to condemning uh, guilt. And so with every passing year, they were reminded that their debt was great. And yet when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, provision was made to do what? To get us out of debt. To get us out of debt. To pay it off, if we might describe it as such. Again, if the sacrifice of the Old Testament could have taken away the sin problem, the debt would have, uh, could have paid the debt, excuse me. Those sacrifices, how does Paul put it in verse 2? They would have ceased to be offered. It would have been done. It wouldn't have been continual. It would have been repetitive. Yet they were repetitive because they could not take away sins. And so therefore, they were reflective. They reminded them constantly. Every time they went to offer a sacrifice, man, here I am. I'm doing it again. Why do I have to do it again? Because they haven't been paid for yet. It was a temporary, a looking ahead and looking forward to Christ who would pay the ultimate sacrifice and uh, pay the ultimate debt for you and I and our sin debt. 
We said at the end of the, the service last time, in the heart and life where Christ's blood has not taken away the sins by faith in him, both guilt and liability remain as the sinner's personal responsibility. And yet it does not have to be so for anyone. Christ is the real deal. He is the real image. He is the one ready to take away the sins of every person who trusts in him. He didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins. He was sinless, the sinless dying for the sinful. But to accomplish that, Paul now goes on to explain how that came to be. It necessitated Jesus Christ coming to this world, leaving heaven. He had to come here to earth to accomplish this wondrous deed. And, and in doing so, we ought to remember this truth. And uh, this is a truth that ought to stick with you and something you take on and mull over and those sleepless moments in the middle of the night. You can think about this. You know, Jesus Christ was the only one uh, that has ever chosen to be born on earth. He's the only one that ever made a willful choice to come here to earth and be born. Why did he do it? Well, he did so for you and for me. In fact, we would put it this way, you were the reason. Why did the God of all creation, why did the, the Savior, why did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, choose to be born on a place like earth? He did it for you. He did it for me. And Paul makes this point clearly in this chapter and specifically in verse number 5. Look at that with me, if you will. Look at verse number 5, just the first part of it. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world. Let's stop there a second. He came into the world. So, uh, number one, we've seen that single sacrifice pictured. Paul says, look, we can look back at these old things, the, the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices, and it pictures Jesus Christ in his greater, best, superior sacrifice. Number two, we see the single sacrifice presented. Paul now is going to present it, explain it to us, how this all came to be, how he came into the world. In doing so, though, we have a most unique aspect in the Scripture. In fact, I think this is the most fascinating read of the entire chapter 10. When you jump into it, man, it's it kind of like, okay, where did this come from? What, what is this all about? Well, as we jump into the next few verses, it, it is as if the curtains on the window of the throne room of heaven had been pulled back. You and I are privy to a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son is explaining, and he's speaking to the reality of the incarnation. That fact, and, and I would say, as the verse even indicates, a conversation perhaps in ages past, right before Jesus Christ came to earth. And in this conversation that is taking place, we're very much just given the side of Christ. It is a great reminder of this truth. Before Jesus Christ was born in a manger in Bethlehem, he lived. His eternal pre-existence is found throughout Scripture. It is established as a fact. In fact, I would say, verse number 1 of Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God. He was already there, already present. The eternality of God, including certainly Jesus Christ, the Son. Well, the Holy Spirit here leads Paul to quote a passage from Psalm chapter 40 in verses 6 through 8. It is a most interesting uh, thought that the Holy Spirit would draw out of this chapter in the middle of Psalms, a chapter written by David, and, and as we'll see, probably descriptive of himself in some ways. But as he leads Paul to quote David's words here, 
we are seemingly an observer to this conversation in ages past between the Son and the Father. And the Son is passionately speaking about His willing sacrifice to come to earth. That He is willing, uh, a willing uh, lamb, the, the sacrificial lamb, that will pay for man's redemption. And He speaks of it being ordained from the time that time began in ages past. The verses in Psalm 40, if you were to read them, and we'll see them in just a moment in Psalm 40, they give little indication of the, the prophetical aspect about them in and of themselves. They seem to be expressing the heart of David, and yet the Holy Spirit who wrote the New Testament through human authors is the same Holy Spirit that wrote the Old Testament through human authors. And so he himself ties this together, and he uses Paul to do so here in Hebrews. As he's inspired the entirety of the scriptures, he gave those words to David to speak of our Lord and Savior and his coming. Though to a degree they might have played or applied to David at that time. And as the Holy Spirit does, as he always does with prophetical passages, I, I like that he adds illumination in context here in the reference found in the New Testament to the statements originating in the Old Testament. It's quite interesting because this happens a lot in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit will lead a New Testament author to quote an Old Testament passage. And when we've come across that Old Testament passage, as we've read it, we might say, well, what does that mean? What's that fully uh, implying? What's the implication? Well, as we come across in the New Testament, often the Holy Spirit, through that human author that he is guiding, directing, inspiring, gives you and I the context of what it said in the Old Testament. And he illuminates us in understanding, ah, that's what it speaks of. What do we call it? Illumination. Well, in our common base vernacular, what we say, that's a light bulb moment. Okay, and what we mean by that is the light bulb went went on. It's not broken, amen. It turns on. Ah, I get it. That makes sense. Okay, now I understand it. And in very much the same way, I believe that's exactly what's happening here. Because as now Paul quotes Psalm chapter 4, they're like, wow. That makes sense. It's referring to Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not just referring to Jesus Christ. It is the actual words of Jesus Christ in a seeming conversation that he is having with God the Father, which, whoo, blows our mind. Conversation that potentially happened in heaven before his incarnation. I'd like for you to see it. For sake of time, I want to have it up there. And for sake of comparison, I went ahead and put Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8 here on the screen. Notice what it says with me. You can certainly turn there, but I want you to be able to look in your Bibles here at Hebrews 10 and Psalm chapter 40 at the same time. It says this, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now look in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. We look at uh, verses 5 through 9. Notice it with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 and 9. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, okay? We read that. This is on Christ coming in the world. He saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. Parenthetical phrase. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. And just the first part of verse 9 to the period. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. What's the first thing you notice? Well, one of the things you might notice right away is, guess what? The Holy Spirit leads Paul to quote it twice. Most of the, uh, the passage here is repeated twice. And certainly, uh, very, um, uh, the, the most important parts of it are. And you say, why is that? Well, certainly for emphasis' sake. And, and I'd have you notice the, the points that the Holy Spirit is making through rehearsing these words. In, in many ways, it's quite fascinating, the Holy Spirit quoting Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. Here is the plan all along. Here's why he came. Here's what Jesus Christ said in his conversation with God the Father about understanding why did God do this? Why is this God's plan to redeem sinful man? Come to earth, die, and pay the greatest penalty. Why did he do all that? This gives us a little bit more of a glimpse into the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. Notice with me, if you will, what do we see? Number one, we see um, a bold proclamation. Letter A, a bold proclamation. This would be somewhat astounding and disturbing to the Jewish um, person. As he reads this, and no less than three times, there is a bold statement to the fact about their offerings and sacrifices that were offered of old. In fact, it is describing God's view of it. If these are, as it is presented to us, the very words of Jesus Christ, he's talking to God the Father and says, listen, I, I know you, didn't, you weren't satisfied. You did not delight in those offerings and those sacrifices of old. They did not satisfy you. In fact, he uses the terminology here, thou wouldest not. In other words, the continual parade of offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament never satisfied the God of heaven. In regards to redemption. Thou wouldest not. Those didn't satisfy the debt. Had, those never satisfied you as God. In fact he adds a, a more vivid description. He says what? God you had no pleasure in them. I, I know you had no pleasure. It's quite an interesting statement that he puts before us here. Thou wouldest not. Verse 5 he repeats it again later on. Verse 6, for sin, thou hast had no pleasure, those offerings for sin. He, Christ is saying, God the Father, I, I know those did not appease you. Those didn't cut it. Those didn't take care of it. There's no pleasure. There's no delight in them uh, when it came to the atonement of sin because they could not atone for sin. Verse 4, we've seen that, right? They could never take away sin. So that begs the question. In fact, it's stated in, in one of the verses here that, verse number 8, neither has pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Now, now here's a little conundrum. Here, here's a little uh, controversy. Here's, here, here's a little, uh, how does that fit together? Because he says he has no pleasure in his. Now, would us not do those things to be delighted? Yet, isn't it the law, God's law, that required the sacrifices and the offerings? Because that's what it says here. He says, that are offered according to the law. They're offered by the, what the law says. Yes, they were instructed and, and incorporated, instituted by God's law. Yes, they were necessary. But let us not forget what Paul has presented in Hebrews. They were very much a stopgap remedy. Kind of filling in. 
Okay? Let me ask you this. There may be some of you here, you haven't eaten dinner. You don't, you don't typically eat dinner. You don't have enough time on Wednesday. I typically don't. I may <laughs> grab like a snack, um, but I'll eat afterwards. And many of you here, because of work, you do the same thing. Okay? What, what do you sometimes do? Well, sometimes you walk into the kitchen, you grab whatever you can, kind of just to fill in, right? It doesn't fill you up. It's, it's just something to hold you over. Have you ever said that? Man, I need something to hold me over. Just kind of carry me over so I can really eat it. And I, just, just something to, it doesn't fill me up. It's, it's just going to make me uh, stay alive until my next meal, all right? Not that most of us couldn't live without a few meals, but anyway. It holds us over, right? It, it keeps over. Now listen to me. That's exactly what I believe that God would have us to think of the Old Testament, the law. It was kind of a hold you over until Jesus Christ came. It was the thing that, okay, this is going to hold us over. This is going to be that temporary atonement that isn't the real thing. It's not the real image, but it kind of holds us over till Jesus Christ comes to earth. And what have we studied on Sunday nights? At an appointed time. Romans, at the due time, the proper time, the time that God ordained that Jesus Christ would arrive. And so what Paul is saying here is, yes, those were ordered by the law. They were instructed, instituted by God's law. But they were never designed by God to be the real thing. They were just to hold, just hold mankind over till Jesus Christ came on the scene. See, the double reference here speaks to the fact that God also became less satisfied with them, these sacrifices, because they became a sham and a mockery. Even when Christ was here on earth, we remember what happened with all the sacrifices and things. They became the, the most important thing, and yet the, uh, the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and uh, others there within the religious elite and those who would call themselves good Jews, they got to the point where the sacrifices and the offerings were everything, and the heart was left out. Christ himself, in fact, he, he emphasized the heart. You see... Too many who offered these sacrifices and offerings. And this goes back to before Christ's time. In fact, many of the prophets of old spoke to the reality that what was happening in Israel in their day. Well, yeah, they were going through the motions. They were going through the rituals of offerings and sacrifices, but their heart was not in it. And you see here, it is a common theme throughout the Scripture. These sacrifices and offerings became meaningless religious rituals they had nothing to do with obedience to god or faith in him there was no obedient heart within uh, the worshipers themselves see we are told numerous times in scriptures of this truth aren't we no amount of sacrifices can substitute for obedience no amount of sacrifices can substitute for obedience and we could say heart obedience here See, it's a sad day when people who profess to worship God, follow God, they substitute sacrifice or gifts of any sort for an obedient heart. What do we mean by that? Well, it happened in Christ's day, didn't it? <laughs> they were substituting sacrifices and offerings for giving God their heart. It happened with many churches in what was called the Dark Ages. Uh, they became obsessed People began to believe that they could buy indulgences, they could pay for penance, they could give money to the church to gain absolution from sin. And even today it happens. There are those who 
claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who think if they just give a little bit of time to God, they, they throw him a service here, a service there, and, or, or maybe they throw uh, some money into the, the offering plate and it'll make up for everything. All will be well. And yet God has told us time and time again, no amount of sacrifice can substitute for obedience, for the heart. In fact, it is why Jesus Christ came along and he emphasized the heart. Out of the heart, the abundance of issue, or the, the, the abundance of the heart are the issues of life. He, he would speak about your heart has to line up. Uh, Christ presenting the proper balance spiritually. And how easy for, it, for us, is, uh, for all who claim to be religious, for those who claim to follow Jesus Christ, to get out of balance. I've told you before, the longer that I have been alive, the more that I have the longer that I've been a Christian, the more I realize the Christian life is all about balance. Keeping everything in a proper perspective and a proper balance. Is God concerned about you and I doing right and being holy? You better believe it. But it better come from a heart that's yielded to him in obedience. Boy, you get out of balance one way or the other and then we're going to have problems, aren't we? If we say, well, God only cares about you and I doing the do's and stopping doing the don'ts, and that's all that matters to God, guess what you and I can become? Pharisaical. We can follow in their footsteps if we leave out the heart. But if, on the other hand, and we see a modern tendency, what is that? We emphasize the heart. We forget about following God's rules, obedience to his word, and all of a sudden it's all about what's the heart and how you feel and all these things. And if the heart's right, then everything else is taken care of. And my friend, you know what that leads to? Weak Christianity. Christianity that does not match up to God's word. So there has to be a proper balance between the heart and the obedience. And God says, listen, I... I want it all. What does God ask for? Does he ask for part of you and I? No, he asks for all of us. Every part, every aspect of your life and mine. Yield him everything. And I like the aspect of that. That certainly that Paul alludes to many times over in his letters, but also that he hits upon here. No amount of sacrifices can substitute for an obedient heart. Make sure that what you and I do in obedience to God's word, that's important. Make sure it also comes from an obedient heart, one that is yielded to him. What he's finding out here, what he's sharing with you and I, that these things don't please God. In fact, God instituted the old covenant. He knew it was temporary and would not do what was needed. I like what verse 7 says about Christ. He says what? I come to do what? The will of God. It's interesting that even here, Paul makes a statement that Jesus Christ affirms time and time again in the Gospels. Remember what John chapter 6 and um, uh, verse 38 says? Let me back up here. First of all, understanding the passage reiterates that Christ came to do the will of the Father. You see it again, as I said, verse 7, even before that. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And uh, he repeats it again, verse number 9. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Again, a glimpse into the very heart of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? It's the will of God. He came to do and fulfill the will of God. You remember what he said while he was here on earth? Multiple times he says the same thing. John 6, 38 says it, right? For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. I didn't come to do my own will. I, I'm not here to fulfill my will. I'm here to fulfill the will of God. 
And what did that will encompass? What did it entail? What did it involve? Well, verse number nine tells us. Look at verse number nine. Notice what Paul says. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And what does that involve? He taketh away the first, that's the covenant, the testament, that he may establish the second. So he does away with the first covenant, that temporary, that shadow, that that picture of the real thing, and he establishes the second covenant, the one who is doing the offering and who is the offering. So in order to do this, God's plan involves something. In fact, if you look back up, verse number 5 alludes to it, okay? First of all, we've seen a bold proclamation. Number two, would you see it be a body prepared? A body prepared. Verse number five says this, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Jesus Christ speaking to God the Father, he says, listen, you prepared a body for me. Uh, it speaks of the, the fact that this body was prepared for the Son, the incarnation of Christ. Yeah, it's interesting, but this part is not recorded in Psalm chapter 40. Here's the Holy Spirit giving Paul a little addition of clarification. The context to add here in Hebrews chapter 10 for your and, uh, yours and mine understanding of the passage. What do we know? Well, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, wasn't he? He could have a body that way that was not tainted by sin. He did not have the sin nature passed upon him. And therefore, it was the perfect sacrificial body. The perfect sacrificial body. The one that God had planned from ages past that would be laid down for our sins. Man, it's such a beautiful picture that it says that, you know, God prepared a body. All right, Christ, here's the plan. And uh, this is what you're going to do. I've prepared a body. You're going to go into uh, mankind. You're going to be incarnated. You're going to become one of them. And you're going to live a a sinless life. And this is a a perfect body because you're going to be born of a virgin. And you're going to lay down this body. In fact, I like what John or how John would describe it later on in 1 John 3, 16a. He says this, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. He laid down that body. He he gave it. He sacrificed it. It was a prepared body according to the very plan of God. And you say, well, what's the big point here? The point is this. God in heaven, whose holiness demands the sacrifice, that ultimate sacrifice that alone could atone for sin, once for all was both prepared and provided by God alone. It was prepared and provided by God alone. You and I could not do it. This is, this is something you and I could come up with. And boy, doesn't that remind you of something, a story of the Old Testament? You remember God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to wake up early. I want you to go to this mountain. I want you to offer your son Isaac. And, and he did so in great obedience. And as he bound Isaac there on that altar, he raised the knife. And you remember what happens. God speaks. And, and you remember what happens next? Over in that thicket, there's something stuck. That ram that God had, what? Prepared and provided to take the place. And we often think of Abraham and that, that willingness to sacrifice his own son, a great picture of Jesus Christ and so forth. Can I tell you, there's so much more in there and there's a whole lot of pictured in the reality that God prepared and provided a ram in the thicket to take Isaac's place. And my friend, can I tell you, before you and I were even in existence, before, man, before time began, God had a plan for your redemption and mine. He had prepared a body. 
he had provided a sacrifice. He, he knew the uh, foundations of the world that this was going to be necessary and needed. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant would not do. He would have to provide Jesus Christ. And so Christ is the fulfillment of all that has been promised and spoken of before. And that really is the point of the parenthetical phrase. Verse 7. Look at it with me again. Look inside verse 7. There's, he inserts this and Never by accident, this is the Word of God, so it's there for purpose. And it says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that in Psalm 40, I'm like, That's, I don't get that. That doesn't really make sense in application to David. Now it's like, aha, illumination, the light bulb moment. I get it now why that is there in Psalm 40. As Paul, now led by the Holy Spirit, quotes it referring to Jesus Christ. In other words, there's not not to be something new to the Jew who is reading this letter. His mind ought to go back to, you know what, that's true. This one that has come to earth that has been promised, yeah, this has been written about before. You see, my friend, we, we, we've seen, it's, it's been presented to you and I, a bold proclamation, a body prepared. Number three, would you see a book proceeding? A book proceeding. Look at verse 7. Notice what it says again. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Literally, Christ's coming was foretold in God's word for all to see. In fact, we can go back, we can look at the law and it speaks and pictures Jesus Christ. We can go to the, the book of Psalms as we have tonight and see many other passages that point to Jesus Christ. That he is coming, the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, the coming sacrificial lamb. And we can go to the prophets. And oh my, so many of them foretold, and they, they spoke of the one that was to come. Look at Isaiah, and boy, we enjoyed our studying of Isaiah and the many references to Jesus Christ coming. And they speak of much more. Do you realize in the preceding revelation of the Old Testament in Genesis through Malachi, you and I have an unprecedented amount of information about Jesus Christ that is given to us. We are told about his birth. We are told about his behavior, how he will live. We are told about his death. We are told about his burial. We are told about his resurrection. We are told about his future reign. And everything in between, it is all foretold in what? The volume of the book that God has already given. He's there. In fact, I would put it this way. You see it on the, the outline. He and his coming are all over the pages of the Old Testament. He and his life, they're there in type and in shadow. They're there in precept and principle. They are there in prophetic utterance. And they are there in clear, direct revelation. There are things said about Christ that you cannot miss it. There are things that are there in the types found within the law and the sacrificial system as we have seen throughout Hebrews. He is there throughout every page. He is presented to you and I. It is in the volume of the book. It speaks of Jesus Christ. And so for anyone familiar with this book, there would be no excuse to deny the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And may I just tell you today, I sure am thankful for a similar revelation that tells us who Jesus Christ is. It is a book that reveals, it is a book that speaks to who he is and what he is. For a person to reject it, they are literally rejecting Jesus Christ. Because it says exactly who he is and what he has done. And so then the author here finally sums this up well. This idea of the single sacrifice in verse number 10 where he shares with us a bountiful plan. A bountiful plan. Look at verse number 10. Notice what he says. 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I love this verse 10. He gets to it and he says, listen, here it is. Here it's all together. Everything we've just talked about. In fact, I would put it this way. You see it on your outline, okay? This is all of it put together. He says, okay, here's the will of God. Also, here's the body that's prepared. He, he's, he's, he's sacrificed. He's given it, the body of Jesus Christ. And here, here's the coming of Jesus. He came and he made the sacrifice that is once for all. I think the most exciting part of the verse is the first few verses, or first few words, excuse me. He says what? By the which will. Now that's a little, uh, in our English, it seems a little clumsy, but understand what he's saying. By the will we have just talked about. By the will of God, who Jesus Christ said, I'm coming to fulfill this will. I'm coming to do God's will. Okay, that will accomplishes something. What is it that that will accomplishes according to verse number 10? He says, by the which will, by that will of God. You know what happened to you and I? Sanctification for all. Sanctification for all. That being made holy in Christ, being made righteous in Christ, the positional sanctification that is once and for all that nothing can change or undo. This is the bountiful plan of God. Will of God was that Jesus Christ would come and once for all, you could be placed and declared to be righteous. You could be justified. You could be, you could be declared sanctified all in Jesus Christ. Once and for all. Never have to be done again. Your positional sanctification is done. It's a done deal. It is finished, as Christ said. Can I ask you a question? How many of you think it would be wonderful to never have to go back to a doctor? How many of you think it would be wonderful to never have to go back to the dentist? I unfortunately was there last week, and I got a feeling that I lost. You know what I did? This is so dumb. You get old, and you realize you shouldn't do things. When we were up in the UP back in June, the kids had some bubble gum. I hadn't put bubble gum in my mouth for 10 years. I put bubble gum in my mouth, and before you know it, I have a feeling. My bubble gum became really crunchy. I'm like, what is that? Sure enough, filling left, and the dentist couldn't get me in until last week. <laughs> what a blessing, huh? I hate going to the dentist, though our dentist is very nice, very kind man, and uh, uh, he can always talk about the Lord and talk about his background, his faith in the Lord, so it's always exciting. But I, I don't like going to the dentist. I don't like, if you offer to me, Pastor Henry, you only have to go to the doctor once, and that'll be it forever. Hallelujah. Pastor Henry, you only have to go to the dentist once, and it'll be a done deal forever. And I say, hallelujah, where's he at? <laughs> Can I tell you, that's not going to happen until we get to heaven. But spiritually, it happens when you come to Jesus Christ. Man, it's a done deal. You never have to go back to him. Those words that <laughs> King James translators, it's in italics, at the end of verse 10 are perfect. Once for all. Once for all. It is a done deal. You don't have to go back. In fact, you see the statement here. It is once for all sin and once for all time. Never to have to be redone. Never have to go back and revisit. We only need to come to Christ once in faith. And we are saved once and for all.
His was a singular sacrifice that achieved for us what we could no longer do. Praise the Lord for it. Brother Cliff, you'll bring those prayer requests up.